Dear listeners, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to another episode of Friday Night Live, our first episode this year. I would like to take this opportunity to wish you all a happy 2012. May this year be better than the last, inshallah. May Allah give victory and blessings to all our brothers and sisters the world over. This is your host, Nasser Al-Khatib. Many exciting things we have for you this episode. Fascinating guests, amazing stories, and a new co-host. Sister Sarwa Abdurrahim joins us at Friday Night Live and QK Radio, and we look forward to dumping most of our radio editing work on her. Our guests today are famous Australian-Egyptian photographer and lecturer Peter Wani, visiting from Queensland. We chat with him about identity, photography, and the new Egypt. We also catch up with brother and Ustad Nuruddin Limu, head and founder of the infamous Train the Trainers course. A most formidable character that was a pleasure and a source of knowledge for us just talking to him. But first, let's talk to Sarwa, our new co-host, and find out just who she is. Assalamu alaikum. We're here today to interview our new co-host to the show, and that's me. And uh, we would like to welcome uh, Sister Sarwa Abdurrahim uh, to the show. Uh, she'll be working with me, inshallah. Uh, presenting uh, our guests and interviewing them and inshallah doing a lot more work than I am. So uh, Sister Sarwa, um, how are you? Alhamdulillah, thank you for um, allowing me the opportunity to um, co-host with you this show inshallah. No worries inshallah. It seems, or I've been told that you've been working in the radio station way before um, I started working, I think even before I was born, is that right? No, I'm not that old, mate. Um, no, I started working here probably about seven years ago. I worked here for a couple of years. I did a couple of shows. The show that I did um, is called Generation Drive. I did it with a couple of um, young people. And that show was targeted for the youth. We, we spoke about issues such as drugs, um, marriage, any issue really relating to young people. And uh, so what do you do otherwise? Um, are you a teacher? Are you a um, candlestick maker? What do you do? No, I'm not a candlestick maker. I've completed a couple of degrees and one of them is in media, um, which is um, filming. And the second degree was in law. And um, alhamdulillah, I ended up just sticking to law and I've been a lawyer for about five and a half years. I practice in family and criminal law at the moment. And I also um, I run my own practice out from Liverpool. It's not an ad for my practice, so. <laughs> no worries, inshallah. Mashallah, that's, that's great. And um, we're very excited to have you, inshallah. This episode of Friday Night Live will uh, have a little bit of Sister Sarwa, inshallah. Next week, uh, when we interview Brother um, Zakaria Matthews, uh, she's going to take a much more prominent part in the interviews. Thank you, Brother Nasser, for this um, segment. I'm honored to have the opportunity to introduce myself and to speak about myself for a couple of minutes. I don't get that opportunity every day. Um, inshallah, we'll begin the show now. My first guest today is not a person I would usually interview. He's not Muslim, and our interview is not going to be about anything specifically Islamic. It's more about identity and belonging. And even though we differ in religious beliefs and in certain values, I found so much of his experiences of coming to Australia to be relevant and have struck a chord, a strong chord actually, with me. And as an Egyptian, he also provides great insight into the issues of identity and belonging. He's also a massively awesome photographer, so let's go meet him. I am here with Peter Wani. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Peter Wani, yes. Peter Wani, right. okay, great. And we are lucky to have him here with us at a local gathering of Egyptians with the Egyptian ambassador to Australia. So, Peter, thank you very much for uh, coming here with us. 
Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I'm always very much appreciative of uh, engaging with and being with other Egyptians because from where I come from, in, um, Brisbane, Queensland, there's not as many as obviously as okay. Sydney. Generally in Sydney, we tend to think that everywhere outside of Sydney and maybe Melbourne is just desert. There's no one. <laughs> so we're surprised when people say they're from Queensland. Or... No, Queensland is certainly no desert. It's okay. uh, it's a fantastic place. If anyone has ever never been there, they really should make it their effort to come visit us in Queensland. Brisbane's a wonderful city and uh, certainly there's a lot to offer in Queensland. Okay, so we'll start with yourself, Peter. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. My beginnings here in Australia was when I um, left um, with my family to come here to Australia. Yeah. Uh, we arrived in Sydney yeah. in around 71, yeah. uh, 1971. Um, I did most of my education in Sydney. We started at Marrickville Public High and then from there I kind of uh, moved on to um, other schools. Eventually I uh, settled in Sydney and did university studies, got married and found myself uh, moving to Queensland. Mm. I got my current employment with a very good university to be part of, and that's Griffith University, which uh, has uh, the college that I'm part of, which is Queensland College of Art. Uh, I lecture at that university as part of Bachelor of Photography program. So that's a very uh, specialised photographic program that is sought after by international students as yeah. well as uh, nationwide mm-hmm. throughout Australia. From my time speaking to you today, it's very clear that your professional and artistic and even your uh, general, uh, like your personal identity is very much shaped around your Australianism, I guess you could, there's a, such a thing, and your Egyptianism. That's it, yeah. I mean, you, you're very proud and Australian, but you're also very Egyptian as well. Yeah, I have a tremendous amount of respect to both my motherland that uh, gave me the birthright of where I was born, um, as well as my family's ancestry, which is Egypt. And I also have, I think, adapted reasonably well and assimilated in what I consider to be a privilege to be part of, which is the Australian culture. If there is such a thing, it's it's Australia, Mm. but with its diverse culture, uh, where we can um, freely conduct ourselves and 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 enjoy life and uh most importantly never forget your history never forget your past yeah so um tell me about your first years in australia in sydney when you came in you probably didn't speak a lot of english yeah yeah when when we arrived um i had no ability to speak english whatsoever not a single word uh i went to a french catholic school as a child in egypt uh, where I was never allowed to even speak Arabic in the school grounds okay. uh, or in the classroom, mm. so it was strictly French. Okay. So French was certainly something that I arrived to Australia with, uh, speaking fairly fluently and reading it and writing it, but also speaking Arabic fluently and writing it and reading it because of my parents' efforts that they were able to educate me privately at home to keep that up. Yep. Uh, so I was able to... Um, have a, a, a pretty good idea of language in both the French speaking as well as the Arabic speaking. Mm. Made it very difficult to be dropped into a school which was strictly English speaking. Mm. Um, but I think the secret was, and it's the encouragement from my parents, is that they made us have friends that were Australians, group with other Australians, 
assimilate into the Australian culture and immerse ourselves with a lot of Australian friends. That helped a lot. So you didn't have any problems in the beginning with, I guess, I don't know, bullying or just problems? Actually, I found them incredibly accommodating and very intrigued about our culture. And uh, to a large degree, for my time that I had as a child, they had a lot of respect towards me. It could be a little different now for somebody who arrives in Australia that speaks very little or no English. But I know that I have, at the time, had a wonderful privilege to be accommodated by these Australian um, children or English-speaking children who were able to support me and help me. And uh, that's not to say that they didn't take a joke uh, and, and... make me the joke occasionally <laughs> because it's always humorous to find uh, somebody who would, doesn't understand English and then yeah. to tell him to say something to the teacher <laughs> that obviously wasn't uh, yeah, appropriate. Uh, but I think that kind of jest and humor is, yeah. uh, is interesting and yeah. enjoyable and I think I was able to certainly adapt and understand the Australian sarcasm mm. and uh, the humor of the Australian way and I think that's important. Um, so, uh, moving ahead, say, 25 years, mm. during that 25 years you developed um, as, I guess, an Australian yes. of Egyptian background. Yes. Until about 1995, you mentioned when your sister was getting married and your yes. whole family went to Egypt. Yes, well, I've be, because of my obsession with the Australian culture, uh, I, I guess I, I was able to forget my country of origin uh, as a nine-year-old boy has kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wanting to accept the culture that they're in. Uh, We left behind a period of time which was a little more disappointing and frightening for a child Mm. because it was uh, a fairly heavy fighting period between Israel and Egypt. Mm. And so as a child, my memories of it have been ones that have been uh, somewhat uh, frightening as a child, you know, seeing mm. and hearing rocket fire at night was never a pleasant thing. Yeah. So I was able to um, adopt the freedom and the wonderful, serene environment of the Australian way. Mm. And I think that became a somewhat a way to switch to a very different culture and a way of switch to a different life. Yeah. That allowed me to leave behind me a lot of that experience that wasn't so positive Um, but then in about 1995 when my sister decided to marry another Egyptian Mm. we decided as a family to go back to Egypt and have the wedding and I think that's when my eyes were open to what is really my motherland and my real home that I left in around 71 and um, through that it's almost really an awakening I was able to spend two weeks of the three weeks that we were there for the wedding and other things to engage in the culture and experience the culture travel throughout the country photo document it um, and uh, create some wonderful imagery of what I consider to be a cameo portrait of a culture that is intriguing to most Australians and uh, certainly uh, very inspirational and is talked about a lot and uh, certainly is sought after as an experience. So uh, when I had an exhibition um, close to about almost nine to ten years later Mm. from that work, I had the uh, 
urge from a lot of friends to conduct a trip to take them and give them a bit of this experience yep. uh, and to show them this wonderful land that is my homeland which is Egypt uh, and that's I guess where I found uh, another niche for me to both um, introduce, show to my fellow creative people that I'm friends with, colleagues, other students uh, within the university, professionals, they're able to share some of that experience that uh, I had been through. And um, it's always a wonderful opportunity because following those trips we always um, have a, a group show, an exhibition, and I've had my own personal solo shows after many visitations of the country. Um, in addition to those kind of things, I've also um, tried to get the university that is um, my current employment to see if I can in any way uh, see how we can get a relationship happening with other universities in Egypt um, that we were able to form bonds between Egyptian universities and uh, Queensland, the university that I was working at, which is uh, Griffith University, and particularly within the Queensland College of Art um, area that I'm actually part of, I was able to uh, target art faculties within universities so yep. that we can have a relationship where both students and staff can have an exchange. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I think that we are in a global world where internationalisation is uh, certainly the cry that we are after in our um, university um, and, and therefore this really was a wonderful opportunity to spread kind of uh, communication. So through photography, yes. um, how do you think that sort of benefited the image of Egypt and of Egyptians to I guess at least Australia because you mentioned initially that many of your friends Australians and you know many of your students and just generally people in public when they think of Egypt they think danger they think criminal gangs roaming the streets but afterwards um, that has changed hasn't it yeah well my first trip to Egypt I had no idea what I was going to find mm. Uh, and it wasn't a tour that I organised or a trip where I took other people. It was m largely my family. The mm. second trip, after seeing it for myself, where I found complete harmony, uh, connection with the country that I was part of once upon a time. Uh, the second trip I organised was with a group uh, of people which were largely Australians, made up of students and other professionals. You know, I decided to take my daughter mm. with me because I was comfortable enough to know that this is a wonderful place to visit. I certainly had no uh, conception of fear or in any way concern about safety. Mm. And certainly everyone that went along must have considered it. In fact, a lot of them wouldn't go to the country on their own. They felt that because I was going to take them there, they felt... The, the urge they'd want to see. I've always wanted to see Egypt, but I've never had the courage to go on their own. Here's an opportunity where I can actually assist them to do this. Um, the amazing thing is I even had people wanting to pull out because of issues of safety around close to the time of our departure. Okay. But it was incredible because that group of people, when I finally took them across there, and they had that experience that the last thing and the most amazing thing is that they felt 
wonderfully safe and they could not believe why anyone would have in any way any concerns of the safety. Uh, look, we walked the streets at night, one, two o'clock in the morning. I had my daughter beside me. There was no issue of safety. Uh, the country is very welcoming of Australians. They're very loving of people outside of the country. They show an incredible amount of respect. Um, and I think that the Australians that I've always taken back with me treat the Egyptians of equal. They see them as wonderfully uh, culturally rich uh, kind of people who they would like to get so close to and become part of. And, and that's a lot of the strength of the trip that we organise is really because of the, um, the close connection with rich cultures. Uh, it's not just a tourist junket, it's yeah. also a way of mixing with mm. certain groups and civilizations within the country. And with the um, photo exhibitions that you've had yep. since then, yep. uh, what sort of effect do you feel that is made to people you know, being exposed to it here in Australia? Um, incredible richness in culture, uh, incredible quietness of actually being able to um, experience the uh, moments that these images have been of. Uh, they're able to articulate qualities of people within the country. I see them as almost not just moments but also as portraits of um, certain characters within the landscape, landscape that is before you as well. It was predominantly a black and white exhibition okay. so I, I utilised a um, kind of technology which is certainly um, very analogue in its approach but it's also a way of allowing me to produce photographs that one can look at and not be concerned with time. They could have been taken 50 years ago, they could have been taken today and they could have been taken 50 years from now. Mm. Uh, they seem to have a timeless kind of uh, emotion yep. um, and where at the same time I was taking colour, mm. those pictures were more, I guess, I guess uh, sort of a high-level tourist picture, mm. whereas the black and whites, uh, I think I must have, when I held the camera that had the black and white film in it, it almost spoke differently yeah. because I started to think differently. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. when I grabbed my 35mm SLR and I took pictures on slide film, it was just moments in time, records. Mm. The black and white film using a medium format camera was starting to be more storytelling. Hmm. Moments of instant moments of time yeah. which certain nuances that helped articulate that psyche of the Egyptian character or hmm. the landscape or the person or the character within the landscape. Yeah. Uh, and so it was able to articulate that to the viewer. Okay, that's great. Um, as an Egyptian, and you also mentioned this before, when things started happening in Egypt uh, February of this year uh, and until today, uh, you mentioned that this issue was a very personal issue for you. If you had gone there, then you might not have been able to maybe handle 
the chaos that you would be seeing in Egypt right now. So how do you feel about it as a photographer and as an Egyptian? Well, okay, as an Egyptian, I'm significantly disappointed because nobody wants their homeland to be in such unrest Mm. uh, and nobody wants to see their homeland in chaos. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that to most Westerners, they see it as a a country in a a degree of chaos currently. Um, I didn't want to take Australian people over there uh, for the planned trip this year um, because I wanted to guarantee that people saw Egypt as it truly is. Uh, Egypt is not what it truly is currently. It is going through a phase and it's unfortunate that the phase that it's going through is happening to it. But one would hope that outside of this current phase, at the end of it all, that we will get the Egypt that I know back bigger and better. Mm. And so I guess whilst I had no uh, reservations to get on a plane and go there myself... Uh, as an Egyptian and be part of the culture and country. I guess I didn't want to take um, people that are removed from the culture, removed from the political situation and um, put them in that environment and uh, have to deal with issues that may be of a disappointment to them. I understand my country, I understand what's going on within my country. I have certain skills that they don't have and so for me to be there, in fact, I have a strong yearning to go over there probably in February. Um, it's because I'm, I'm connected and I mm. haven't been there for now two plus years and I'm having withdrawal symptoms. So, and I think that things will get on track. Life will get resumed back in a normal way, way a way that most societies outside of the country would uh, bring them back into it and uh, they will feel that you know things are normal again and I'm hoping for that to happen and praying for that to happen sooner than later. Okay so tell me about your program you mentioned that it's not just students that you take it's also photography enthusiasts anybody Mm. basically who wants to come I mean I guess uh, you know based on some limitations and uh, conditions that you might have yes how can people learn about this program well the, I guess I'm I'm not uh, I never set out to create this as any kind of business really to me it's uh, a way of exposing the wonderful uh, culture that Egypt has to offer to people who are interested in articulating artistically hmm. um, what they see and how they experience it. I mean, in the past, the groups that I've taken have been made up of artists who paint, artists who sculpt, artists who draw, uh, even musicians, uh, jewellery makers, um, students who are studying in photography, studying in animation, studying in film, studying in uh, fine arts of all sorts. And um, that's really what it's about. It's about people who want to go and experience this culture and out of that they're able to uh, I guess be inspired to create, tell a story of their experience, tell a story that they had seen, tell a story that's important to them to tell through some form of artwork predominantly it has been photographic um, and I must admit who would go to Egypt without taking a camera 
So whilst maybe their title is not photographer, certainly everyone who went took a camera to take pictures uh, for one reason or another. And I found that um, as the trips um, took place every two years predominantly, um, things got improved, they changed a little bit, I began to know more of what the client base, which is the group I take, Mm. what they were looking for, what maybe they're not as interested in. Um, And I work with a fantastic tour guide who has an understanding of the Australian culture. And I guess I feel that not only that I can go out and have a fantastic time, because I'm not sick of it. I've been there eight odd times. And Mm. every time I go, I found this incredible rush. Mm to not only um, be part of it, but also to um, share it with others. Uh, it's a bit like somebody with a fascination on a piece of technology or a toy. <laughs> you kind of have to tell somebody about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think this is really quite valuable. Well, we all pray for Egypt. Yeah, we certainly need to do a lot of praying for Egypt, and I'm hoping that out through all that not-so-nice, we can have a wonderful um, country back online and... Um, one that I think could be a great example for other nations. Peter Wani, thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us and thank for you. coming in um, to do this interview. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Redemption from desire Desires a lonely crier Oh, redemption from desire, desires a lonely cry. Astaghfirullah, inna Allah du karamin wa rahmatin lilladhi qattaba. Zalali astaghfirullah inna allah du karamin wa rahmatin lilladhi qattaba min zalali astaghfirullah inna allah du karamin wa rahmatin lilladhi qattaba When I first met Nuruddin Limu, I didn't know who he was. It was just that the two of us were there, so there was no one to tell me who he was, and he didn't introduce himself. All he said was, Assalamu alaikum, my name is Nuruddin, are you Egyptian? And at the time I wasn't, and um, he looked more Egyptian than I was. Alhamdulillah, uh, since then I've met him, I've spoken to him, I've interviewed him. He's an incredible person, and we're very excited at QK Radio to have interviewed him. So enough of me, inshallah, we will now go to the interview. So uh, today our interview, inshallah, with Brother Nuruddin Limu, world-famous instigator of the Train the Trainers course, a course which has brought a lot of benefit to Muslims and non-Muslims worldwide. So uh, we start, inshallah, with myself, uh, Nasser uh, Al-Khatib, and uh, Sister Sarwa Abdurrahim. Brother Nuruddin, Salaam Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Salaam wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Let's start with, with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I come from Nigeria, mm-hmm. born there, mm-hmm. 
and grew up there for most of my life. I studied primary school, secondary school, and my first degree was in agriculture, the Ahmadabello University. Then I did a master's degree in resource management in Edinburgh University, Scotland. Then I did a diploma in Arabic from the Institute of Islamic Sciences in Amman, Jordan. Then I started working with an international Islamic charitable organization in Nigeria. Then I moved to work with the Islamic Education Trust, where I presently am the Assistant General Secretary and also the Assistant Director of the Da'wah Institute of Nigeria, which belongs to the Islamic Education Trust, where I head the research and training unit. So tell us about the program that we mentioned at the beginning, the train the trainers course. I remember um, in New Zealand, that was about 10 years ago when I first heard about it, that a person came from Africa and he was giving this course that basically prepares Muslims to tackle controversial issues. And I was thinking, what's a person from Africa going to know about the issues that Muslims are facing in New Zealand? But mashallah, the course has uh, proved successful. And so I would love to hear the, um, I guess, the, the idea that, that got you to launch this project. Firstly, talking about Africa, I think it's good to remember Islam came to Africa before it went to Medina. I know it takes time to digest that, but <laughs> the course really tries to equip Muslims to handle the kind of questions that they find difficult responding to when presenting Islam to non-Muslims or when presenting Islam in societies um, where people want to know why, uh, particularly when it comes to why we do what we do, why does Islam teach this and that, why is this haram, why is this fard. And um, the objective is to prepare your average Muslim who works or lives with non-Muslims to be able to more effectively share Islam with them. At the same time, the course tries to help Muslims in understanding Islam better and thus becoming a kind of a vaccination uh, against extremism uh, in religion. So the idea is you train people who then train others uh, to the best of their ability. And we've been conducting this course in Nigeria for over a decade and a half now, and in at least 20 other countries on all continents. In some places, we've got some very good groups of brothers and sisters who have continued training others, and the work goes on. Hopefully, inshallah, this year we'll be putting more stuff online on the website of the Islamic Education Trust, and uh, that would make it easier for the material to be accessible to a wider audience, inshallah. And over the last 15 years, have you noticed through your work or through the work of others any significant or marked improvement in terms of how these issues are dealt with? Yeah, alhamdulillah. Um, we've been very privileged to get feedback. Um, I think particularly as we don't deliberately go to search this feedback. It's expensive to do such an evaluation. But 
Alhamdulillah, in most of the countries, and I can speak with more confidence about Nigeria, a lot of the youth organizations that were pretty radical and had some very negative attitudes towards non-Muslims and interfaith uh, peaceful coexistence have changed drastically. And uh, they're now more proactive in bridge building um, and able to handle differences within Muslims with the necessary courtesy, respect, acceptance, much better than how things were in the past. I wouldn't attribute that all to the course, but probably the course did contribute in that regard. And in many other places we find those who have gone through the courses over the years become much more ready to engage with non-Muslims in interfaith um, and be part of mainstream non-Muslim uh, or pluralistic societies instead of just living in their own intellectual or social ghetto um, where you find some Muslims just have their group of friends where they keep arguing and, or, or sharing Islam among each other, but they don't go and join the major community to be useful there and to share Islam through their words and through their lifestyles. In terms of the topic that you choose to tackle, how do you make the, the decision this topic is worthy of going into and this topic is maybe not straight or not so much in need of uh, going into? We regularly conduct surveys where whenever we conduct a training program in any country, and we did it last week here um, in Sydney, we ask the participants to write down those questions that they found were barriers to their comfort with Islam. So what questions did they find faith-shaking? What questions did they find embarrassing to answer? What questions did their conscience not feel too comfortable with about Islam? What questions did they fear? If a non-Muslim asked, um, I'd feel very embarrassed. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'll not be proud of my religion um, if somebody asked this type of question or kept asking these type of questions. And as we gather these questions from different parts of the world, we begin to find trends. They're those questions that keep coming up. Questions that, oh, is it true a woman's inheritance is half that of a man's? Is it true a woman's witness is half that of a man's? Um, does the concept of jihad in Islam allow us to attack non-Muslims? Can we be friends with non-Muslims? Are the Christians and Jews of today really Ahl al-Kitab? Because that then determines whether you can marry or eat their food and other things. Um, and the list of questions carry on. You know, if a woman embraces Islam, must she divorce her husband? Um, so we find these questions recurring again and again, quite a number of others. And based on what the most recurring questions are, um, we decide what becomes part of module 101 and what then would be module 102. Uh, can you say salam alaikum to Muslims? Can you say um, Merry Christmas? Is niqab wajib? Um, is it okay for a woman to go out and work if her husband can take care of her uh, and handle all the bills and all that? So th there's so many questions and what we try to do is always stay in touch with what are the top questions um, so that the course is as relevant to the particular community as possible.
Okay. Um, because some questions may be a bit difficult for people to appreciate the differences of opinions among scholars, we also try and make sure, like most of the first day of the course, focuses on the study of usul al-fiqh al-maqasid, at least an introductory study to the methodology of ijtihad, so that people know the various approaches scholars take when tackling topics, so that there's a respect for the various madhahibs and their various approaches to issues. What's the response that you found with the um, Australian people that attend these courses? Alhamdulillah, it's been very positive, very encouraging. Alhamdulillah, for many of them, it allows them to understand what goes on between the Quran and Sunnah and a fatwa. You know, when a scholar holds a position, understanding the methodology of ijtihad and how scholars process um, that allows them to know what, what really do scholars do. Um, are they really important? Can't I just go and read Quran and get my conclusions? Um, it also, I think, helps them see the difference between what does Islam require, in other words, those things that are essential to Islam, and those things that are just the cultural packaging or layers that have come on top of Islamic teachings that some Muslims are not able to separate and which therefore make it difficult to see Islam become a homegrown religion in a place like Australia or New Zealand or anywhere else. Um, so one of the things from the feedback is that they became more confident about Islam, more hopeful about Islam, and then actually understood what Islam at its core really is, while at the same time being more ready to agree to disagree agreeably with people who hold differing views and also appreciating where they are coming from and respecting sincerity even though it's expressed in divergent opinions but at least respecting the sincerity behind the endeavor of the scholars who hold the differing views. You mentioned earlier that um, the course also aims to tackle um, extremism yes. or deal with extremism. How do you essentially do that? Well, there are different types of extremism. Uh, some are very extremist when it comes to issues to do with women. Um, so women must be veiled. Women's voice is aura. They cannot speak in public. Um, uh, a woman must obey her husband in everything. A woman has no right to divorce. Um, all her husband needs to say is, no, I don't agree, and she's stuck in the marriage. A woman is intellectually inferior to a man. A woman's witness is always half that of a man. So, I mean, there's so much on the gender issue. Then you've got those who, are who hold extremist positions when it comes to non-Muslims. You know, you can't be friends. They're not pure, and the list goes on. And some look at it, you know, you should fight or be aggressive towards non-Muslims. So you've got various forms of extremism, and... What gradually that does is, when a person gets too used to very many extremist positions, their psyche and paradigm, the, the way they view Islam is so warped that when a new situation comes, they can't think straight. And so when you ask a question like, a person has embraced Islam, really he loves his mother and he loves his father. Is it okay for a Muslim to love a non-Muslim? And some just can't see it happening. It's when you tell them, but Allah says that the Prophet loved his mushrik uncle. And in that verse, Allah is saying, إِنَّكَ لَا تَحْدِمًا أَحْبَبْتَ You can't guide the, you know, those whom you love. And if you look at the Sabah bin Nuzul, it's talking about the Prophet's feelings for his uncle. 
um, he loved him. And Allah had no problem mentioning it. But when somebody's got a really warped understanding, um, it's like they don't know how to come to terms with that type of verse. No, that the Quran would allow you to marry um, a Jewish or a Christian lady, for example. Of course you love her. But in the mind, it's how can you love somebody who is not a Muslim and have a relationship that is closer than mere friendship? And it's usually because they've got various forms of extreme positions they've taken on certain verses of the Quran that then create the wrong type of thinking. Somebody would easily just say, well, common sense um, is not very common for some people. And it's very often they take positions and sometimes slide into more extremist positions because extremist positions become the ladder to making it easier to accept other irrational positions because these are irrational themselves. But when you start clarifying these issues, then they begin to get more suspicious about certain irrational positions they hold or positions that really don't settle too well with their conscience. They're ready to now question that and question whoever has been teaching them. But if, they, if you don't help them question these positions, then they stop listening to other scholars and only listen to the person who continues with that extremist position. And if they are very honest and sincere, they could just follow blindly to... Very dark place. Very dark place, yeah. Uh, you know, shaitan is more interested, as the Prophet said, in misguiding a knowledgeable person than in a thousand ignorant worshippers. So, yeah. In terms of the people that you train, do you filter out those you train and those who you feel may want the training for um, the wrong uh, reasons or those who you feel maybe are not uh, ready to train or to engage in this sort of work? Usually the selection of who should be trained is left to the log local organizing uh, committee or organization. They decide who comes. But we prefer to train people who we hope will be trainers. We prefer to train people who have some outlet for da'wah. You know, as opposed to somebody who just stays at home or works somewhere but doesn't is not interested in da'wah, I mean, it's still useful probably to such a person, but we would rather, because we try not to have too big a class, and we try not to go beyond 20, 30 people per class, 30 would be going a bit too far sometimes, um, because some of the topics you need to go a bit slowly. And to understand usul, you don't want a class where somebody knows absolutely nothing, and so is just um, sprinting with you as you go and leaving others behind. So the organization inviting us to conduct the training program for their members or whoever else, they do the screening. We also try and make sure if we're training for the first time, we assume people don't know a lot. Uh, and so we do start from a basic level. Uh, and usually once somebody has reached high school or senior secondary and above, the topics are not too complicated. It's not rocket science. Or <laughs> Do you notice any trends happening um, throughout the world or basically, for example, in Australia and the US and UK? Or is it has it been just generally the same cycle of questions? Have the questions, I mean, uh, the reason I'm asking is because there seems to be now a wave of, you know, anti-Islamism or Islamophobism, whatever you want to call it. 
And so is that affecting the way that Muslims are uh, questioning their religion or having questions within their religion? Um, firstly, they have, if you're going to, if people want to attack the Quran or attack Islamic jurisprudence, um, there are those standard attacks you'll always get. People attacking the Quran, its authenticity, the Hadith, people attacking various aspects of Islamic law, why do you cut the hand of a thief, why do you stone the adulterer to death, why do you permit polygamy, why did the Prophet marry more than four wives, why did Prophet marry Aisha at such an early age, why this, why that, the list goes. So there are those questions that they've always just been recycled and anybody who wants to take a shot at Islam these are some of the questions that usually come up. So there are those ones that are your standard recycled questions. Then there are those questions which become more important in some communities, less important in others. In places where you've got a lot of people embracing Islam uh, or picking interest in Islam, there are some questions that would be more common there than in other places. So, does a Muslim, does a person have to change their name when they become a Muslim? You know, we know Umar stayed Umar, and when he became Muslim, he was still Umar. You know, and so did Hadija and Aisha and everybody else, etc., etc. So, if um, Tiger Woods or you know George Bush or whatever become a Muslim, do they need to change their names? Um, do they need to be circumcised? Uh, in some places they say yes, in other places no, the Prophet never required it. person embraces Islam, must they have a beard? Must they wear a hat? Must they always come to the mosque for all their prayers? Many of these who become Muslims live with families who have alcohol in the fridge or who have a dog in the house. Is it okay? You know, if I touch my dog, do I have to do my ablution again? Uh, can I say many, Merry Christmas to my family? Can I be with them at the Christmas dinner when they... Can I eat the turkey? Can I eat the food of Ahl al-Kitab? And the list goes on. So you have those questions that come up because many non-Muslims want to know more about Islam and are engaged. In places where it's Muslim majority, sometimes the whole area of uh, women's issues, women are getting more educated, um, it no more makes sense for you to just say women are more stupid, they are half-brains, etc. You know there's always a girl better than you in the class, usually. Um, we know in the authenticity of hadith, a woman's testimony was as good as a man's testimony. So certain questions to do with fiqh and what really does the Quran or Sunnah teach in these areas um, for those societies, it has become very important to understand Usulul Fiqh and Makasid so as to be able to review the opinions of scholars and sometimes find which is the more appropriate opinion for the new evolving uh, societies we live in. Um, you know, some people would talk about jihad, and to them, the verses in the Quran that talk of our peaceful coexistence have been abrogated by a verse in Tawbah, Surah Tawbah. So, is that really true? And so you do have differences in some areas, but with the internet now, there's a lot of overlap. You know, you find nearly everywhere you go, 90% of the questions being asked come from a pool of around 200 questions. So in Australia, you would find more questions on this issue of homosexuality. Um, does Islam 
um, tolerate it? What if non-Muslims want to have uh, gay marriages? Is it okay? Uh, so that becomes more important in a society like here in Nigeria. Um, nearly every Christian, every Muslim, nobody wants to even hear of it. So it's not even an issue, let alone a priority issue. So yes, you do have differences, but I would say of the questions that would be asked, probably 70-80% of them are predictable. To change the subject, um, I'd like to ask you about what you do in Nigeria. In Nigeria, what we do is well, we've got an organization that does a lot of things. They run schools, welfare, community development, um, and da'wah in the broad sense of the meaning. And in the da'wah area, there's rural da'wah, um, where you go into villages where there are sometimes idol worshippers or Christians, etc., who are interested in knowing more about Islam, so that goes on. Alhamdulillah, we get a fair bit of converts, and we work with many other organizations too. Most of my time in Nigeria is spent in research and production of material for training. So we have various courses. The TTC or the Train the Trainers course in Islam and Dialogue is one of those courses and that has quite a number of modules. But then we have courses in personal development and uh, leadership. We have courses in financial literacy, helping Islamic organizations become more financially self-sustaining. We've got courses in Da'wah resource management which is more human resource management, volunteers, and all that most Dawa organizations are concerned with. Um, got courses on Dawa methodology, teaching methodology, courses where they're related to career guidance and counseling um, to help young Muslims um, know what to do as they move into university or they're leaving universities. Um, courses on premarital counseling and managing married life. A lot of young people in universities, uh, sometimes in secondary schools, um, have already started thinking about marriage, but they don't know what questions to have at the back of their minds if they meet somebody and they want to decide, for example. So we've got all sorts of little packages, um, courses that we train others to train others. And most of our time when it comes to training is training the da'awah members and volunteers of other Islamic organizations. And we've got um, over 40 Islamic organizations in Nigeria we are regularly training every year in various courses. I understand that you do some work with schools, and Islamic schools in particular. So I'm not sure if you've had any experience with Islamic schools in Australia, but what do you do different in Nigeria in terms of um, your curriculum? and? Um... Um, most of the Islamic schools, I don't know about how things are now, but most of the Islamic schools I've seen in most parts of the world, Australia inclusive, have tried to give conventional education but with a slightly greater emphasis on studying Islamic studies, memorizing Quran and recitation. And also they have more Muslim teachers uh, to hopefully give them more role models. And because they are Muslim majority, um, they rub off or they're expected to rub off more positively on each other. I think what is different with our school, and I can't say this for all schools, I mean, I can't be too critical of other schools here, but because um, I don't know how much they've evolved since then. But in our school, um, you learn Quranic Arabic, not just Arabic. 
you learn the meaning of everything you say in prayers. And anything you've memorized, you should know the meaning of that. You have a subject called Islamic Perspectives, which looks at the Islamic side of the other secular subjects. So if you're being taught economics, you will teach the students some things about Islamic finance and Islamic economics. If you're teaching them geography, etc., you'd let them know what does the Quran already have to say on those areas. Um, so that they don't gobble everything, but at the same time they don't look at everything as wrong. You know, what's right in others? So um, they understand that Islamic ethics of what goes into halal and haram would apply to art and fine art. Subjects like biology, um, what other views scholars have on topics to do with evolution. Um, in agriculture, uh, what does Islam teach regarding the treatment of animals? Uh, in history, what are those things about Islamic history or the history of science? Uh, and how Muslims contributed to these areas that they should be aware of, which usually the curriculum doesn't say. I don't know about here. So the subject called Islamic Perspectives really tries to look at the Islamic perspective of each of the other uh, subjects so that if somebody decides to go into any subject, um, uh, if they're going into engineering, they understand um, you have responsibilities to environment, you know, when it comes to issues to do with pollution and all that. Uh, and so as a Muslim, it's not just, we just carry on with a conventional um, secular idea of profit maximization, but more purpose maximization and remembering that you will answer to Allah uh, on how you treat existing generations and how what you leave behind will affect subsequent generations of people. On the Day of Judgment, we're all gathered together. We and the great-great-grandchildren and whoever has done an atom's weight of good, you know, you'll see it then. That subject tries to do that. But also, subjects like um, financial literacy, um, uh, premarital counseling, these are all subjects where we help them see an Islamic perspective um, on how they should view their future. And uh, another point probably here is, while they do Islamic studies and all the other things, um, we try to ensure that they, they have some really good characters, people of integrity who are working, particularly in the boarding hostel, because the boarding there's day students also, uh, but most of them are boarding, that they have people who are really good role models. And that every so often, usually every Friday, there's a respected um, speaker who comes to give them nasiha um, um, so as to keep a really good Islamic ethos going. And we have, you know, you've got a graph of the discipline, okay, how, mu how much rudeness, uh, how many cases of truancy, how many cases of expulsion, etc. And alhamdulillah, you can see the graph of misbehavior coming down. But also you're looking at how many were when the extra mile to help a teacher or to do something. And you see uh, the amount of positive <coughs> attitudes and behavior on the rise. So uh, we've been very happy with the standards. The sta academic standard of the school has been going up. We've represented Nigeria um, at least twice. Um, we've taken national awards in a number of areas a uh, couple of years in a row. So Alhamdulillah, it is among the best schools in the country. And we've been very grateful to Allah for 
been able to do great stuff for our students. Alhamdulillah. Do you find any lackings in the program as it stands now? Do you, is there something that, you know, if you could, you would change in terms of, I guess, uh, resources, better networks, whatever it is? Alhamdulillah, we've tried to always incorporate the suggestions for improvement in one big area that is lacking is internet presence and making things available. You know, So if somebody said um, a woman who embraces Islam, does she need to divorce her husband? And you say, well, you have scholars like Ibn Qayyim who says there are nine different opinions on that topic and Gardawi comments on finally what they're saying is, no, she can stay with her husband, etc. Um, some would want to argue, you know, no way, that's not what I was taught, that's not what my madhab says, etc. And where do you get that information? Uh, for those who are not ready to read, how do they get more details? Um, what we hope, inshallah, we will do is make audio, video versions more available online. Um, this year we got invitation from at least seven various countries to come and conduct training, but we don't have enough international trainers because all these people are, they've got families, they've got this and that, so can't just spend your time globetrotting conducting yeah. training programs, particularly in the Scandinavian winter. <laughs> um, so insufficient trainers that we're comfortable with. Of course, sometimes the problem is if you've got a Nigerian passport or if you've been trained in a country, that's one thing, but how easy is it for you to travel to go and do training? Sometimes another issue. That's why getting trained in places like here, um, to some extent Malaysia, Singapore, and some of these countries does make travel uh, and the training much easier than it otherwise would be. Um, and also new blood, you know, people who have new ways of presenting. We're old blood, so to speak. And um, so. I think there's always a lot of room for improvement and evolution and we hope you guys will be part of those who push it forward in the bet in a, in a way more appropriate to the future inshallah. inshallah. Brother Nuruddin Limo, thank you very much for your time. Alhamdulillah. And uh, we wish you all the best inshallah for the future um, uh, rounds of uh, train the trainers course. Inshallah. And that was Brother Nuruddin Limo. This brings us to the end of our show tonight. Thank you all for listening and for your contributions. We remind you again that if you want to contact us, you can do so via the Facebook group or by emailing nasr.cat at qkradio.com.au or you can call us on 02-9724-3355. This is Nasr Al-Khatib bidding you a good night. See you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.